0: Welcome to another episode of The Gary Hour. I'm your host, Gary Levitt. This week, I talk to comedian, actor, storyteller, Mr. Gabe Pacheco. We talk about all kinds of art. We talk about performing stand-up and what it all means, what he's learned and what he's gained from it. Growing up in D.C., talk about teaching for a while. It's an interesting one. Hope you enjoy This episode is brought to you by Future Moments, makers of mobile apps for content creation. If you're a musician, a podcaster, voiceover artist, or if you just make videos on your phone that you want to improve, go to the app store and search for Future Moments because they probably have an app that makes your life simpler. Thanks for listening. If you uh, scroll down, you'll see the show notes where there's links and information. You could easily subscribe or leave a review, but most of all, I just hope you enjoy. Alright, Gabe Pacheco, thank you for being here. Gary Levitt, man, I'm thrilled to be in your wonderful cozy air-conditioned abode it was air-conditioned until i just had to shut it off for this podcast so uh let's get silver with <laughs> <laughs> look I, pu-
1: I put this uh the stopwatch on my phone and nice. we're ready to go yeah
0: all right actually i wanted to start i like to start with a heavy question okay go for it okay so you're an actor you've studied improv uh stand-up comedian 10 years here in new york city that's right i okay. paid my dues it's yeah. been more than 10
1: years, to be honest. I've, I've been, I did my first open mic at Hot Comedy Club in uh, 2004.
0: Okay, 2004.
1: So, so, to do the math, that's about 14 years. Yeah, it's been a long time. But, you know, you brought up improv and you brought up, and I did sketch. So, I think I did stand up first. And then I started going to UCB shows. And mm-hmm. I was just blown away by what I was seeing. I, I'd never experienced improv before that. So, yeah. it was a big deal to watch like Amy Poehler and her crew. You saw them, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think my grandma came to visit me in New York, and she sat in the front row with me, and we watched uh, like you know a pro improv show. And uh, she's like, "This looks like witchcraft." Because they're like,
0: (laughs) "How are they doing that?"
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The openings, you know, when they're Mm -hmm. sort of it just they're doing incantations, and they're just like, it seems like they're really pulling stuff up out of thin air.
0: Good. So that brings me to the question I wanted to ask you: Um, If the entertainment industry shut their door. To you to everybody right now and they said we've got enough would the last 14 years have been a waste of time oh absolutely absolutely not man see uh this
1: is this is a spiritual journey you (laughs) know do art is a is a form of Mm self-discovery and i would be doing it anyway so i could care less about the external rewards that come from it right you know and also if they shut the door and they say we've got enough we're done hopefully that just discourages a whole bunch of people on the outside and uh my competition withers away and you'll just
0: wait for them to open the door again yeah but
1: it is a journey of self-discovery that's right so there's no there's nothing that i've i've lost from doing it if you go i think that going anywhere else in the country and saying uh, i was a stand-up comedian in new york city that carries something that maybe is lost to other performers who live in new york right now because we're all the fish in the water but once you separate yourself from from this fishbowl what we do is is this is seinfeld the sitcom right what we do is crashing on hbo yeah you know
0: uh we're living this this dream but it does involve a lot of struggle and a lot of disappointments
1: yes yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, every, I mean, every day, day the, the disappointments are that you're not getting more eyes on the work that you put out. You're not getting more likes on the status that you put up.
0: Right. I often use this metaphor of where art, you don't really get a quantitative reward. Where if you're a construction person, so say I want to build a room. I can throw up insulation, then I throw up the sheetrock. I put it all in, and then it's done. And I go, look, I made this whole new room, and everyone will be like, "Wow, that is a great new room," but you put in that amount of time, actually way more time, and maybe ten minutes of stand up, and some people like it, some people don't. You don't get that reward. You can get that reward.
1: So uh, today I was I would try to free write for. Uh, about 30 minutes every morning Mm. and I write three full pages this is like out of the artist's way yep yep. the morning pages so I'm doing these morning pages right and today's morning pages part of it I was just thinking I was meditating back on like accomplishments over the course of time Mm -hmm. uh, here and uh, just thinking that okay, well, there are work products that I put out. Like I, There was a short film that I collaborated with a, a bunch of brilliant performers to make called Simfeld, mm-hmm. which was a documentary about nothing. And uh, <laughs> it, was a take on, it was a take on Seinfeld. But the premise was that this, uh, that, that Seinfeld and Larry David had actually purchased a show uh, called Simfeld written by an African-American man in the East, in, uh, East New York, uh-huh. and they'd taken his idea and made Seinfeld from that. So it was kind of like this tongue-in-cheek uh, meditation on cultural appropriation. Right. And, uh, and also, it was a story of what happens to aging artists who didn't make it. Right. So this documentary filmmaker goes back and looks at the original uh, George and the original uh, Cosmo Kramer and uh-huh. the original Elaine, who were part of the... The uh, Simfeld mm-hmm. before Seinfeld, and what are they doing now? So the the whole thing was um, a mockumentary, but it really was a, a talking about like what what happens to artists right. who don't get the recognition.
0: What happens to them?
1: <laughs> they, they just keep living, man. Yeah, and uh, some of them become some of them become uh, teachers. Uh, I was playing a character, uh, the Cosmo Kramer character, and in my version of him, he becomes an acting teacher who teaches corpse acting. Mm -hmm. He becomes becomes famous for being dead on dozens of television shows and movies. Where he's just totally still dead. That's right. So like for episodes of Law and Order, when the homicide detectives walk in and he's the corpse on the ground. And he's just waiting for that role where he can... Come alive and be an active zombie. Wow. So, yeah, the resurrection role is something that everyone that takes this corpse acting class learns about. Right. And that's sort of the advanced study. They
0: all aspire to it. Yes. Yeah. So this journey of self-discovery is, right. is what it is.
1: Yeah. And so, I, you know, to go back to that very quickly, it's like, okay, if somebody says, well, what did you do in your time here in New York? I can say this. Mm-hmm. That work product. Or there's another film called Leaves and in
0: Autumn. Then what is, oh, you, so you have something tangible to show for
1: it. Right. So, you know, a stand-up, the, it's a sandcastle if, if you're only looking at the live performance aspect of it. Mm-hmm. You're building a new sandcastle every time that you're in front of an audience. And my definition of, stand, of good stand-up is creating a community where there was none before. That's your job. As a as the stand up, uh-huh. so you're creating a, a you're creating a, a collective a community for the ten to forty five minutes that you're on stage, right or hour,
0: and you're all coming together to talk about what you're talking. about. <laughs> you're all coming together to laugh as one, right, right, uh, yeah,
1: and you're you're transmitting your thoughts and beliefs, and hopefully all of these people around you empathize with what you're
0: saying, right. Which, if you go to a room of uh, twenty strangers, what are the odds that they're all going to be on board with your point of view? Right, uh,
1: it's pretty, it's pretty slim, and mm-hmm. that's why stand-up seems like magic to a layman. Right, you know that's why they come.
0: Thanks to get as, everyone on board. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: and so that is, it's great to be a stand-up, but ha- you also have to document your work for posterity
0: and for your own legacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do have something tangible because you're now engaged to another comedian. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's something that
1: something great came out of this. 14 years mm-hmm. that I met, I met my life
0: partner, my you... future life partner. Yeah, my current life partner, but not quite. You know, we're not married yet. Right. I want to ask you, how is that dating another comedian? Because there's so much that comes with that. I mean, relationships can be tricky. Yeah. Amongst themselves. But then being a comedian and being with a comedian all the time, that must come with extra little things Uh, to deal with.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I can just say that in the past, I dated other people who were not comedians. And uh, the allure and glamour wore off overtime, because you got to be out at night. Right. So if you're dating somebody that's living a nine to five lifestyle, they're really excited about their weekends. They're Mm -hmm. really excited about Friday night and Saturday night. And those are nights that, you know, I'm not going to be available. Right. So, uh, dating a comedian, the benefits are that you, you understand each other's, uh, schedules and you understand each other's, uh, struggles to continue to, to maintain a creative discipline. So it's easy to say, "I have to go to the other room now
0: and write, right, and she understands that right exactly
1: yeah. or i've got to go on I've got to go on this thing that might seem like it's just a hang, yeah, I got to go for a walk. why
0: because I just have to do that Is it tricky to put away the creative mind when you're just trying to have a romantic night uh no, no, because it's always
1: fun, I mean being uh, like so I think we're most funny when we in high school, you're the most funny, I felt that way, around like my good friends. Right. Just shooting the shit, just yep. talking, just mm-hmm. freestyling free with each other. So what comedy is, is finding a way to, dist- to isolate and distill that mm-hmm. and make strangers feel like they are your good friends.
0: Right, which is tricky because you don't have all the past experiences with them. Yes, you're just the stranger that walked on stage. Exactly. So why well, you don't
1: necessarily you don't have to turn that off when you're around uh, your most intimate partner. That's when you heighten it. That's when you can be even zanier and crazier.
0: Right. Has a lot of your banter with your fiance uh, made it to the stage? Uh very. You know, very little of it. Mm-hmm. And
1: one, I mean, I, honestly, so there's this this trend in comedy where we. think think that uh comedians have created this illusion that they are on stage who they are off stage right or you know i'm just i'm just pouring my guts out on this stage right, right. this sort of like louis model mm-hmm. you know or like you know and what even that is an artifice totally that and so you're a dummy if you fall for it and I'm mm-hmm. telling the, the listener here that yeah. it's all an artifice. Yeah. Well,
0: and and Louis is not a dummy, even though he portrays one on stage, like to some bumbling idiot. He's probably pretty far from that.
1: Yeah. He. So. So. Like. He. You know. And, and he's not the only one. But I remember listening to like a, uh, and I loved it. Uh, David Cross's um, uh, album that he put out in the early 2000s around like the Bush era, like. The Iraq War, and he's talking about nine eleven, and in it he seems uh, like really rough in his delivery, really unpolished. He's using a lot of likes and ums uh-huh. and whatevers, and but the thing is, is that he'd already been doing comedy for a decade. He'd already written for Mister Show. He was already a master uh, performer and writer. So those ums and ahs and whatevers were were like uh, ornamentations that mm-hmm. he'd already put on a well structured. Uh, house that he'd built yeah and but somebody listening to that for the first time is thinking oh you can just go into comedy and be like whatevs
0: man right well that's the trick that's the magic of making it seem real casual and off the cuff sure i saw that at open mics people go up there like oh no i'm like louis ck inspired yeah just go up and just (laughs) talk about my life yeah you can't so whatever
1: you can do that if you feel like it but realize that the the masters um already learn. it's like in painting where the masters uh, who became abstract impressionists, they started off drawing and sketching hands right you know they learned all of these classical techniques right and then went on to to mask those techniques underneath these uh radical new ways to to uh, uh, represent the
0: world right so you know, you understand the rules, you see how the mechanisms work, and then you see how you can kind of bend it to do something yes. new, casual, interesting.
1: And uh getting back to how this relates to, you know, my fiance and I, it's uh my personal life is separate from my uh performance mm-hmm. and my in my public face. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah. And there's none of <laughs> there's none
0: of career competition. No, no, no. Cuz no. that would be the worst. Yes.
1: Well, we are, you know, you're just trying to, you want to be an asset to everyone in your life. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I look. I try not to be selfish. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I never think of anybody who's successful as, as being an autonomous individual that's making all their own moves. The, per, the, the face that you see is it just like, like socialism. It's <laughs> the tip of the spear is what right. it is. You got to have a team. Who's yeah. your team? You know, what's your support network? Everybody needs a support network. There's no lone wolves that make it
0: out there. Mm -hmm. There's no lone gunmen either. So, (laughs) if you want to get into conspiracy theories. Yeah, no, but I like how you're comparing uh, comedy to art, because I always thought of it as art as well.
1: Yeah, there is commerce to it, but uh, that's not the the area that I've spent a lot of
0: my mental energy focusing on. Mm Mm-hmm. When I first started doing stand-up in New York, I started to feel that it was not a positive way to be nurtured. (laughs) You know, just like it's especially when you're in the open mic world. That is just a rough, unfriendly, depressing place to spend a lot of your time. And uh, when you say it's a journey of self-discovery, it's also a journey of being nurtured.
1: Well, that's why you got to get a team. Mm-hmm. you gotta get your team but you also uh you know uh jokes aren't bad but y- we're also learning how to communicate mm-hmm. effectively
0: right simple and effectively and simple
1: and effective if something stinks it's probably because it needs to be edited right so i'm not the problem the Delivery was the problem. Mm. The the
0: the product I put out was not done I like how you put that because you're separating yourself from the art. You're taking your ego out of it
1: Yeah, it's not personal Mm -hmm. when something sucks
0: It just means. what if you created it
1: You know, uh, here's every mountain is made out of grains of sand Mm -hmm. so I think that every day working on something is what makes it good. An example is, let's say you and I have, uh, we have to read, we're going to do a table reading and you've never seen the words before and you're not great at reading out loud. Mm -hmm. So we sit there and we both read this script together and I fumble over the words, you fumble over the words and somebody sees it a third party and they're like, and they're like, well, you guys are uh, terrible actors, right?" right? Are we? we don't, you don't know if we're terrible actors or not. We, th- we, this just wasn't ready yet. Yeah. So, um, but if you had a night to read the script with uh, with your partner, your fiance, yeah, and you read the script a uh, hundred times with mm-hmm. them, and you got it up on its feet, and you memorized the words, now you've got the words, now you can play with it, and then we come in and we do this audition again. Right. That's how I look at, whether or not stand up is I go on stage and I tell a story and I don't even know what, why I'm telling it yet. I just know that it happened to me. So, and I have emotions around it and then I get a couple laughs and then the next, and then I go up later that night and I'm like, okay, this part was, it ran too long. Let's just try to make it shorter. Right. Okay, and then the next day I go up and I go, oh, what's the opening line to get
0: people hooked? Now, what are you using as your yardstick to measure what to edit, when to edit? Because audiences are so different.
1: That's a a good question. I think, for me, uh, I want to have punchlines close to the end of everything. Mm -hmm. And then if I have an aside in this story, Mm -hmm. why am I telling that aside that aside better also have a point that it's making. Right? right. You know, and then, so I've been telling a story for like three weeks now and I finally got into a place where I can say, Oh, I've got some symmetry between the beginning and the ending. Mm-hmm. And by telling this story at mics, mm-hmm. the mics have sharpened it up so that I make sure that I have punchlines throughout. And then I've been telling it at storytelling shows. And that has made me compare it to how other storytellers are, have sort of different acts to their story or they have a lesson that they learn at the end and even though i don't have a profound lesson that i learn in my story i'm able to couch it within those parameters are you adding
0: jokes in for the storytelling shows
1: oh dude as a stand-up go do storytelling shows because you're always
0: crush yeah 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 yeah
1: especially after like a really sad story mm-hmm. like somebody tells the, the most awful like first sexual experience story or right. like getting arrested and then or someone dying close to them and then you just go up there and smash with like punchline 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 mm-hmm. really diffuses the tension in the room
0: mm-hmm. everyone's really grateful do they <laughs> resent that you're using their storytelling medium for stand up i don't i don't think so because i honored it enough that okay. there's
1: one there's that i there's one a thing that i'm talking about i Mm -hmm. don't uh break i don't finish with a story and then start something
0: else right right it's not like just oh then i was at thanksgiving dinner and hey you ever ride the subway that's right yeah they don't do that uh just to harp back on the first question a little bit it's a journey of self-discovery can you elaborate on what things you've learned for yourself that you think stand-up and acting have specifically given you rather than just living 14 years on this earth
1: yeah it's it's a little bit like working i don't know it's what what can i say it's a little bit like working out Mm -hmm. or playing a sport and you're you you build these different behaviors and habits and strategies around any sport that you play uh like let's say you play chess Mm -hmm. and in chess it's thinking four moves ahead Let's, let's say, as a, as a simple thing. Right. Or learning how to use uh, a, a variety of different tools around you that each have uh, different properties. So it's like learning how to manage a team. In that way, uh, being a stand up has taught me a variety of things, be it how to promote yourself, how to uh, produce events, how mm-hmm. to promote events, um, right. lighting. Right. A audio. lot of skills that
0: take you to that are applicable in other mediums.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Branding. (laughs) Branding. Branding and marketing are huge. (laughs) Copywriting. Editing.
1: uh, Editing any writing. Uh, I've been able to extemporaneously just talk uh, give speeches at weddings and funerals Mm -hmm. and any sort of funerals. (laughs) 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 They do. They do. Humor crushes at funerals. You, nobody wants to hear sad stories at a funeral, (laughs) right? You know, all of, even if you're telling anecdotes about missing someone, the more, uh, ways that you can add humor into it, you know, it's, you're, you're there to uplift even a funeral. A funeral is also the creation of a community where there was none before. Mm. It just so happens that someone, someone had to pass, for all of these people whose lives were affected by the person who died to see each other. Right. So it really is, as much as it's a celebration of that person's life, it's seeing all of these other people for the first time. Right, You're now tied together as a community by this person's That absence. person brought all the
0: people together. Yeah. Even if they were a divisive fuck, they brought <laughs> everybody together in that moment. <laughs> yeah yeah sometimes the sometimes
1: the biggest monster can right. uh can bring everyone together uh finally yes. to make some to work towards some changes it all
0: ends the best way it could <laughs> possibly end so there's some opt- yeah you know I, i'm a uh, glass half full i guess you are you're an optimist sure so these life these are life skills that you learned right? yeah and also getting rid of the filters.
1: How many filters do you uh, do you have in your life that you put up um, that keep you from that where you're policing your own language, where you're policing yourself? Uh, and how many facets of yourself have you actually explored? Mm-hmm. So I think that the, the act of being a stand-up means that you're going to focus on things like your impending mortality. Mm-hmm. And you're going to write jokes about it. Or you're going to focus on all of the issues that you have interpersonally that have caused every relationship up to this point to crumble and fall apart. Mm-hmm. And you're going to find a way to communicate uh, these sort of universals to this audience in front of you.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, and it gets boiled down to, so I'm on Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> but there you are forced to face yourself in an honest way. Yeah. Uh, you studied improv and you probably learned this from improv that you just have to be as honest in the moment as you can and in stand-up people sense when it's not improvisational and that's part of the magic of stand-up is making everything you're talking about seem like it's the first time you're talking about it It's just coming off the you're just rolling with it up, right off the top of your head yeah and once people sense that it's rehearsed or it's been said before they might tune out sure sure I can see that
1: I don't know if I feel that way, personally, because I am a fan of stand-up, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that it's when I started watching it, I watched it on television. And television and movies, watching a stand-up movie, those are, it's like a cold medium. And so when I'm watching it on TV, I know that it's not the first time. Right, That illusion's already been broken. So, but you, but you're more introspective than most people. Sure. Or you watch George Carlin, and there's no way that those lists are off the top of his head.
0: Of course, right? <laughs> but I'm sure you've done shows where you're doing maybe you're doing a material even, and the audience is laughing, whatever. And then you'll uh, just improvise something in the moment. And then that gets a huge laugh. Right. And you're like, what the fuck? Fuck you guys. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I just worked on this material for a, a year. And then I just improvise something in the room and that gets a bigger laugh. Like, no,
1: <laughs> I, uh, you, so I was listening to a Bill Burr album uh-huh. and this was like right when I started, maybe right before. And I'm thinking about doing stand up and he's, there's like two tables and it's like a black table and uh, like, I can't remember why, maybe he said his grandma was racist mm. in the bit and there was, uh, a rejection by the audience to hit to hit what he was bringing up
0: to the pre- they rejected his premise. Yeah, There uh-huh. was some outrage early right. on
1: and he you know stops and talks to them and he's doing all these jokes that are like riffing and crowd work and I'm listening to this and I'm like this is the most daredevil evil Knievel <laughs> thing At like what you you know you plan this album to record it and you're just willing to go off script and just veer into this unknown territory and I thought that was so brave and uh, again I don't know any I didn't know anything right at the time and you can be a master at crowd work now and you've done even crowd work is muscle memory mm-hmm because you have the responses already prepared that's right yeah. that's right or you are so you're so uh, devoted to you know yourself so well and you're devoted to the values and the point of view that you're conveying with your act that it doesn't
0: matter what anybody says to you Mm -hmm. because you're always in character right one skill i feel like i've gotten from performing stand-up and being on stage and gauging an audience is that i've gotten really good at gauging people so maybe when you do that kind of crowd work that you're talking about you kind of know who to call on because you're like oh that person's wearing that kind of thing he'll probably say this kind of thing yes you get really good at that with Addressing audiences all the yeah. time. Yeah.
1: And I think a difference between what he was doing, what happened is that I don't, with uh, this Bill Burbitt was like, he wasn't asking for, he didn't ask for a crowd to talk to him.
0: Uh-huh. They
1: were. Being addressed they were, too? They were heckling him. Uh-huh. So now he was dealing with that heckler. Right. right? And, uh, and finding a way to get, to get them re-engaged or shut up and then get the rest of the crowd back on board. Yeah. And I thought that was that was both so scary because I hadn't started doing this yet, right? You know, and and then now even
0: thinking, well, would I want any crowd work on my albums? I don't know. Why do you think it is that audiences respond to that moment of improvisation? Well, the live audience—that's what they're
1: there for. You mm-hmm. know, they're there for uh, like stand-up is a hot art form. It's a hot medium, a live right. performance. So I think it's actually been. Uh, it's to its detriment that it's on television so much mm. you know I I think that uh, when people go out they want to feel like they're really connecting with this well, another mammal who's in front of them on stage right. they can t- see the sweat on that person's brow and you guys are all, in ga- you all they're the same smell everybody's got the same smell in the room right, right. maybe it's the free pizzas from the back of the bar <laughs> that you can smell coming from the oven uh, all of that we're all experiencing
0: the same humidity or the, the same dripping air conditioner right it's like i have a line that i use sometimes i'll be like all right this show it's it's the show is totally live mm-hmm. people like they're like it's like a weird thing to say at a stand-up show yeah and then they kind of laugh or just like think it's bizarre but uh i think you're right i think people are there for the live anything can happen sort of thing
1: Sure, and in a live stand-up show, the la- it doesn't have to be like 10 laughs per minute. Mm-hmm. In a live stand-up show, you're watching, you can watch a performer dig a hole for like... And there were some brilliant comedians that I, I watched standing starting out, and I was so astounded by like how long they could sustain no laughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this because... But it's not no laughter because people aren't engaged. They are like dead silent watching or squirming. And then then uh three different threads of ranting are pulled together and tied into a nice little bow at the end and the whole room erupts in this massive cathartic laugh yeah that's so much more satisfying than like a titter here a titter there yeah and and at the end of it they remember the the comedian's act because they've had so long thinking about it every time somebody laughs they're forgetting Mm -hmm. everything that you've said hmm you know, interesting. They're also forgetting their worries at least for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So it's a, mi- it's a mix. Can you, you know, if you can do both, if you can get those like laughs per minute, but then you can also sustain some tension and silence and then get a whole room laugh. You're
0: yeah. 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 I often say like my, what I'm trying to do a barometer for a good stand up bit is I've seen so much stand up obviously, but I want people to remember a certain bit. Yes. And, you know, when I, I've seen so many comics, but if I remember a certain bit of someone that is like, whoa, you've just gone to the top of my yeah. list of like, oh yeah, I remember that bit. That's something to really, uh, kind of aspire to. Cause you can get laughs is one thing, but. Well, think about this. You got to sing it, man. You
1: got to mm-hmm. sing it. Even if it doesn't sound like a song, uh-huh. your bit should have a melody.
0: Right. Or oh, the rhythm of the delivery. If you, you got a rhythm,
1: yeah. you got it. It's like having a catchphrase.
0: Mm-hmm right <laughs> yeah I, but to since you did study improv i feel like i've studied improv too and i feel like that's kind of such a great lesson for everybody everybody should yes and because so many people aren't good in conversation it'll make you a better texter you know i don't know if you if you did the dating apps or stuff when you were dating oh i didn't
1: i refused uh, parcel, Well, one, it was just easy to meet people in real life. Right. So, I never, you know, not to brag, but it was, you know, when you're doing stand-up, you're mm-hmm. on stage, you're performing all the time. So why, I'm just meeting people. You
0: don't want to use them just for to get material. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I never thought. And then, and the other thing too was, uh, if somebody wanted to text me before we met, I thought my words were too valuable, honestly, uh-huh. to like give away to somebody I didn't even know. Right. So I was like, you haven't earned i have no emotional res resonance with yeah. this like avatar on my smartphone screen right so they're not going to get my words until like we we have to meet in real I, I need to meet you first right that was always that was my
0: mentality well that's kind of the digital age and how i would think of it at the time was like okay it's like we're meeting in a bar i'm looking at you from across the across the room there you are on my screen now I'm deciding, hey, I'm going to smile at you. So then I'm swiping right. That's my smile. And now if you've if we've matched, you've smiled back at me. I had this all worked out in my head. Yeah. A, a Tinder match for me was like being in a bar, but I didn't have to like get dressed and go out. You did it. You were great. That's great. You were great at it. How I rationalized that? Yeah. Are you really... Uh,
1: I mean, that's like an actor looking over a script and like finding uh, anchors and emotional resonance to like... Or is it delusional rationalization? <laughs> Uh, we're all living in our own dream worlds. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yes, it, it is both, but yeah. it was useful <laughs> yes. and it worked. It was pragmatic. It was, it was productive. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't, I can't do it. Uh-huh. I'm like, well, yes. you're
0: engaged to be married. So that's right. You, that's really? right.
1: I found it. And I've met her at a show. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and she, you know, she was just sat in the front row a couple of times with you on stage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it all worked out.
0: Um, do you think you'd be able to be with someone that if you didn't like their stand-up?
1: Uh, like, what you if know, you
0: liked them as a person, but you didn't like their stand-up?
1: That's, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough to, that's... Here's what I think. I'm an optimist, okay. and so everybody can get better. Mm-hmm. So, uh, stand-up is a way of shaping your... It's a living document. Your stand-up is a living, breathing document. So if somebody's like a year into stand-up, they're going to stink, man. Yeah. No matter what. Yeah. Because even if they've got great ideas, they're not executing them perfectly. Mm -hmm. So who cares? So let's say it's somebody who's like a newer stand-up. It's fine. They have to show a potential for getting better. Right. That's what, that's all I care about is potential. Yeah. But that's how I feel with like every relationship I'm in. I just want to see people growing. It's like, do you hang out with stagnant friends? Right. Yeah. No. Exactly. You hang out with people who are killers.
0: Yeah. Striving.
1: Yeah. Doing pull-ups. They got pull-up bars.
0: (laughs) They're trying to grow as people. Yeah. Yeah. They're
1: doing new things. They're taking new classes. Right. So, you know, a sense of humor is something that is, you need to have, they needed to have that. Right. But do they need to be the best stand-up? No. Yeah. Yeah, they'll get it if they're trying. And if they quit, that's fine. Are they doing other things?
0: Right. But then it's also like you kind of wouldn't even be attracted if they were bad. At st- if they were just bad at stand-up or or their art in general wasn't good. Right. It probably wouldn't be someone you were attracted to anyway. Exactly. Because they go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. So that was, um. I don't think
1: if I met somebody, let's say I was single now. And Mm -hmm. I met a a comedian that was like, you know, 10 years in, and I didn't like their stand up at this point. Yeah. It's over. (laughs) Or would never start. Right. Because what, (sighs) what have you been doing for 10 years that you haven't learned anything about? Or they have learned and they've got all the skills and techniques. Mm -hmm. I'm just not a fan of the energy Mm -hmm. that they are
0: uh, displaying. Right. The material, their point of view. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're from Washington D.C. Yeah, that's I was
1: raised in uh, in the nation's capital. Uh-huh. Totally, right next to the Jefferson Memorial. Yeah, but yeah.
0: Is it you went to high school there and everything? I did. I went to high school in uh, Bethesda, Maryland. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now I always imagined growing up in D.C. must be a bit like growing up in Los Angeles, where like the Hollywood cloud would be over you. Except in D.C., it's just this political. Oh wow. yeah, it's like a it's a
1: cloud made out of beige khakis <laughs> and uh, like navy navy blue golf uh, carts driving by all the time. <laughs> very, it's just oh my god, everybody's uh, it's like jogging, jogging clothes, everybody jogs. Yeah, but every, and, is, uh, is
0: everyone involved in politics? Think tanks.
1: Yeah, no, there's no industry outside of uh, politics. Right. So it's all politicians it's all consultants Mm -hmm. lobbyists Um, journalists lobbyists some journalists journalism doesn't matter anymore it's dead oh let's not even get into that (laughs) (laughs) but journalists too like washington post was huge for me uh we had like tons of newspapers in the house all the time we tried to stay informed you don't think the washington post is dead right now no it's fine it's fine i wish that they let me read more of their articles for free because they're always advertised on facebook and then i click on it and it's like
0: subscribe and i was like no. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm a little torn about that because I want to support good journalism. Yeah. You
1: know? Yeah. Well, they all played themselves. That's, I mean, I'm just like, come on, guys. What do you mean they all played themselves? Well, uh, all, every, all these newspapers are amplify um, nonsense politicians, and they gave them free press uh, up through the election. Right. And we are where we are
0: now. Right. Yeah, it's like they're guided by the click, so, which would m- mean the most sensationalist headlines. That's right. And they're all owned by, um, you know, they're all owned by businessmen. But that's even more reason to support them, so they can operate with a little more integrity if they don't need the dollar.
1: Yeah. I. Uh, uh, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Uh-huh. I just, uh, I remember listening to another episode you had about a comedian who lived in D.C., Uh and I also, having lived there, uh, find I'm very political, and I'm on the Katie Halper Show, which is like on WBAI radio, and we like to interview a lot of local... Uh, politicians and talk about a variety of issues there's i I care more about issues than i care about specific politicians Mm -hmm. so growing up in dc it was like the murder capital of the u.s when i was there and the streets were flooded with any reason crack (laughs) cocaine so much crack and you left the murder rate went down (laughs) right that's right i was just killing him on stage son (laughs) no before i did stand up so i live in dc and i was um And it was a very unsafe city in three quarters of it. And then the area where I lived was relatively safe. I lived in Northwest DC, right by the uh, national zoo. But I saw like, just, it was just seemed so crazy to me to drive around the city or walk around the city and see these empty buildings in the middle of town. Like, you know, within blocks of the capital. Mm-hmm. So we live in the great, and I'm hearing in school that this is like the greatest country in the world. And we're and no matter how bad it seems here, it's worse everywhere else. Right. So that's the narrative that you're, that you're raised with in school that I was getting this nonsense. And, uh, and I thought, why, uh, why is it so bad? Why is the murder capital? Why is this the murder capital? Why are there empty buildings? Um, Why they're empty buildings and homeless. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's, uh, so that made me very critical of like the war on drugs. They also had a, a, a curfew policy for young people. What really? There was a uh, curfew for young people. Yeah. And really it was just like to police like black adolescents. So keep, keep, if you're like black and a teenager, like you can get stopped on the street.
0: Was the, the curfew only for black people? No. What year was this? <laughs> no, but it, but it was Right. <laughs> Right. You know, so there was a curfew for if you were under 16? Yeah. yeah. What was the curfew of time? I think it was probably like 11 o'clock. Wow. So, but whatever, the city was
1: a police state. Right. But only a police state for a certain part of the community. They so only enforced it,
0: it for certain parts. That's right. That's right.
1: right. And the cop, yeah. So you just see, I saw a dysfunctional uh, local government. Um, I saw that D.C. is like an internal colony as well because there's no vote. The votes don't matter. Mm. in the city. So I see some kinship between Washington DC and Puerto Rico. And uh mayor and I watched this fantastic documentary on Mayor Barry. the 9 Lives of Marion Barry. Yeah. And he, you know, uh, he things turned out really poorly for him uh because of alcohol and and crack. crack. I think alcohol more than crack. I think you just start drinking it, and drinking is like the gateway mm-hmm. to like lowering your inhibitions to do other things that are going to be destructive. Right. So uh he just couldn't stop with that. But when he started, you know, he had a lot of really great. He came in and he and his administration addressed a lot of issues that were problems in D.C. How mm-hmm. it was not it, there was no autonomy uh, within the the city government.
0: Now Marion Barry it was a governor. He was mayor. He was the mayor of D.C. Mayor of D.C. and he got caught on camera smoking crack. He got set up. Yes. He did get caught on camera. But then he came back and <laughs> ended up being mayor again. That's right. Oh, my God. That's great. right.
1: But what people don't realize is that his, uh, he had built up a lot of social capital in, like, the 20 years before that. He had a PhD in organic chemistry, so he was an incredibly smart guy. He was, oh. uh, he was an academic. Uh, then he became a civil rights activist, and he's in D.C. working uh, wearing a dashiki you know out there in the streets mm-hmm. as a and then he's working to uh get um get local control of the government because it was being controlled by like sort of southern white police officers and uh congressmen right who were not from the area who were making all the decisions for the people within the city and then he uh he's actually um wounded he gets shot while he's in public office before he's a mayor He's like working as a city council. Someone should try to shoot him. He gets shot in a holdup where uh, this group of um, militant, black militant um, activists, it takes over one of the, I can't remember, it's like a municipal building. It wasn't his crack dealer trying to get his money? No, 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 man. (laughs) But he, he, so he took a bullet for the city Uh and uh, he was, and that, so his popularity as a, as a, a scholar, a civil rights activist. And a, um, and a local, uh, elected official who gets wounded in yeah. the line of duty propelled him to become the first black mayor of DC. Mm-hmm. All of that up to this point is huge. Yeah, And like so many civil rights activists, uh, in the late seventies through the eighties, you know, he got felled by, uh, the government and drugs. Mm-hmm. So he definitely had his own demons. But I can see why people voted for him again after his first uh, slip. Because of all that. Yeah. He was very well liked, huh? He was very well liked, yeah. He wasn't liked by white Washingtonians. Right. Who were like kind of, it was kind of like the OJ thing. Yeah. You know, where uh, they're like, what? He's got caught on tape. We know he did it.
0: Right. And uh, yeah, but you know. So, growing up in D.C., he was your mayor for a bit? Oh, yeah. He was yeah. my mayor for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, Did you ever think of going into politics, or did you become completely jaded from politics being in D.C.? I got completely jaded
1: from, like, you know, the, the it is a swamp. Uh-huh. The, it is a swamp that needs to be drained, and no one's ever drained it. And there's there was cynicism on both sides. I grew up there during the Clinton era, mm-hmm. and... Uh, you know the de- the de- it's it's doesn't matter. It felt a lot like the comedy community in New York City. So like my I didn't have a village of uh, generations of family and friends. What happens is that my parents live there, and that every four years there would be a brand new group of people who got their jobs because they got appointed by somebody that got elected. Right. So it's the cronies of whoever
0: is in power mm. move to the city. Right. So you don't get like generations of people born and raised and growing up in DC. Yeah. You do. There's the African American
1: community has more of that. Uh-huh. But if you're like part of the sort of this professional class of lawyers and journalists and lobbyists, mm-hmm. you're, you're coming from the other states. Right. And you're coming because you're a Democrat or you're a
0: Republican, just got in power, right. and you're there for their administration it's very similar like that in los angeles except for a lot of the mexican south american culture that has just been there for many many years yes yeah Yeah. then you have all these people coming in to try to become actors and screenwriters right so it's la but for like uh,
1: policy wonks and for think tanks
0: (laughs) every four years you have a new neighbor
1: (laughs) yeah uh, uh, totally so the neighbors on both sides of us are constantly changing Uh uh-huh and the house we have in woodley park uh-huh now you're of Mexican heritage that's right my dad is uh he was mexican American. he is mexican american you know um born right on the border and uh his parents were migrant workers so my grandparents both from mexico migrant workers don't speak didn't speak english mm-hmm. and uh then he moved to uh d c to follow my mom in the early eighties uh so who
0: was the first to become an american uh he he is it took a very long time to find that birth certificate though uh-huh yes what do, you, what do you mean he couldn't find his birth certificate
1: yeah i don't know i mean you know the border's a funny place uh-huh so what well, well, was he born in mexico or i don't States? know well <laughs> there's uh <laughs> you don't know or there's Hey, he's he's got a social security number. He's uh-huh. good. He's good. Yeah, okay. that's all. That's all we're gonna say about don't, that. I don't work yeah. for ICE. <laughs> no, we're all good. But you know, uh, there is this idea that Mexico was at one point all of Texas. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, California, yeah. New Mexico, Arizona. Mm-hmm. So part of me doesn't care what happens in the United States, mm. uh, or in that land is right. is still contested land. Sure, of course. So uh, there is an internal colony of Mexicans that live in the U.S. that have always
0: been here territorially. But the border moved. They didn't move. Yeah. I mean, I lived in California for eight years. I can (laughs) definitely vouch that half of California looks pretty much like Mexico. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and on the East Coast, that's a weird thing because, like, I I didn't grow up around other Mexicans. Like, the closest analog was the uh, Salvadorian community that moved to Washington, D.C. in 1980. Mm -hmm. There was a civil war in El Salvador when Archbishop Romero was assassinated, and uh, Ronald Reagan was really uh, into suppressing communist uh, popular uprisings throughout Mm -hmm. Central America. So he was funding all these death squads throughout... uh, Throughout Central America, and there were like a hundred thousand Salvadorians moved to Washington D.C.
0: Mm-hmm. You feel a kinship with? Uh, did you feel alone basically, and not being, not having a lot of Mexicans around? And
1: uh, well, no, I mean, so I grew, I went to a bilingual elementary school, which was pretty cool, and so I met a lot of the uh, Salvadorian community there, mm-hmm. and uh, the I met a lot of like Mexican American professionals. Who were coming from texas and california and chicago uh who would work in the administration of right, dc right. yeah so like here it's funny like you meet the you meet the best and brightest from all over the country living mm-hmm. in dc yeah so all of the dominican and puerto rican people that i ever met in dc were professors poets lawyers mm-hmm. doctors uh and politicians right. who were coming to lobby so from all over that's kind of the feeling it felt like it was like the cosby show <laughs> without like you know what cosby did yeah but the sort of like um excellence of because uh, that show sort of represented what a what a minority professional class would be yeah you know so that was the vibe and then you know i moved to new york to go be a public school teacher and i'm i'd re- i knew in theory about like poverty Right. But I was like, oh, wow, look at, like, the, the conditions in the Bronx are crazy. That's where you had to teach your first year? Oh, yeah. I taught in the Bronx for my first two years. Mm-hmm. Which is
0: the roughest, probably.
1: Yeah, and when, I, when we say rough, it's like, rough to me is that there just are not, uh, there's just not access to opportunity, and there's not access to... to hope. Yes, yeah. Like, the environment is awful. Yeah. So... Uh, the people are fine humans are humans at wherever you go Mm -hmm. so it's not their fault they're not i'm never gonna come in i don't like it when comedians and i have been guilty of it but just sort of like you know you know uh sort of dog whistling like i was in harlem you know what that means or like i was in the bronx oh those kids and it's like no the kids are fine right it's that uh there aren't um xerox copy machines that work it's mm-hmm. that they have to walk up five flights of stairs to get to their classroom right. it's that they're splinters in the doors yeah. it's that they came to school hungry and when you're and you you've been hungry you get hangry yeah you know so there's a million things that are going to make people <laughs> not not put their best foot
0: forward right and that's like the nurturing i was talking about before when you're exposed to just a lot of violence a lot of anger yeah that's just you become that Yeah. It it just cycles again.
1: And you project, and uh, we never point at at the right target. I think that it's very easy for humans to transfer their negative emotions and feelings to those closest to them Mm -hmm. who look like them. Or that they feel like they can be aggressive towards and not face consequences. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Man, how did you, how long did you last teaching? (laughs) First of all, you must have been pretty young when you were teaching.
1: I was super, super young. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was doing and I was still a kid. Mm -hmm. So, that's, I uh, taught for two years there and then I totally burned out. And part of it is that the New York City Teaching Fellows Program has, uh, you're taking classes at night as well. Uh So, I'm waking up at like 5 a.m. and I'm going to teach from 7.30 or 8 in the morning until 3.30 and then I can't even prepare for the next day because I have to take a bus up to Lehman College huh. to then take my master's classes so I'm done by like 8pm and it's pitch black because it's October, November yeah. and it's starting to get cold mm-hmm. and it feels like midnight yeah. and I, I haven't done a single joyful thing all day <laughs> and then I would come back to my apartment and ruminate and listen to comedy albums and this is before you wanted to be a stand-up. I started doing it around this time. I went to my first mics. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so when I started, I wasn't like jumping in with both feet. I right. was like, put a toe in, and I was yeah. like, I'll try this open mic at ha, huh? right. you know. And then I, after my first two years teaching, I, uh, my roommate, she quit teaching, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, well, all of my, I was like the senior teaching fellow in the building by uh, the end of my second year uh, because people were just like dropping out halfway through like teachers were dying not because they were getting killed or anything but like i had a teacher who i saw every day in the teacher's lounge and then one day she just didn't come in and she passed away a young woman and and so i was like do i want to is this i had like a mortality thing right. too, where i was like do i want to just like not show up one day in the teacher's lounge right
0: and then and that be it would she die of a heart attack because it's that hard of a job,
1: yeah, like uh, people had nervous breakdowns and yeah. stuff
0: it was just a really stressful environment to
1: be, so uh was her first was your first gig at her funeral <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know her that well, that also made me sad too, is this anonymity that we you know you're still you're just alienated from your from your coworkers a lot of the time because most teachers are very isolated. You spend your day in a in your own room Mm -hmm. with only children right and so you're you're not practicing being with other adults right you're you're not practicing um, interacting with your peers yeah you're not having an adult conversation all day no you're managing uh, yeah 30 still forming Right. humans How, what grade was it so i taught uh sixth seventh and eighth grade okay yeah and seventh is the wildest but uh i'm super comfortable around seventh graders now right they're that's... my favorite but that's like the joker <laughs> year that's the year where you're like you just you just want to burn it all down because sixth grade you show up and you're still like fresh right to uh the you're, you're the the littlest fish Mm-hmm. and those kids are like looking up to the adults for protection and yeah. and sort of they're still looking to role models and they're they're behaving with elementary school like rules and protocol and then seventh grade hits and eighth graders they're bigger but they see they have some uh role of uh, responsibility in the school yeah. they're the role models you got to look up to them and they know that they're about to advance into grown-up high school so they are they actually carry a little bit of maturity. Seventh graders, though, it's all hormones. Right. No consequences. Yeah. Terrible so, combination. Dude. Yes. The fights. <laughs> so many fights in the hallway. Yeah. And just loudness and um, just general uh, uh, personal instability. Because you're like, one day they're totally calm. And then the next day they they have a gross spurt or like some hormone right. thing happens. And, there, and they're uh, like crying for no reason in class. You know, yeah. Like,
0: <laughs> what happened
1: <laughs> yeah and then the other kids just start mocking them yeah and they
0: have identity issues they don't know yeah they, they don't are yet. they don't know if they're gay they don't know if they're straight they don't mm-hmm. know if they're they don't know anything right they're just they're just blobs of feelings yeah learning about science and history is probably pretty low on the <laughs> interest level absolutely yeah
1: and then it's not connected to their real life because, at all because yeah. they're in because uh, they've got other things other pressing issues the journey of self-discovery <laughs> Right. They should all yes. have to do the artist's way. There yeah. should be, honestly, I'm like, why, why every student should, the first thing in school during the day, I think would be great
0: as a sport mm-hmm. or some sort of physical activity yeah. where everyone's just got to run. You know, I've said this on the podcast before, but I used to have an uh, elementary school. I had uh, a lot of behavioral problems. Yeah. And I couldn't sit still, and I'd make jokes in class, and I'd speak up, and then I figured this out, like you said, I'd get off the bus, and instead of going into homeroom, I would just run around the block as fast as I could, I'd sneak away and run around the block as fast as I could, Mm -hmm. and exhaust myself, and then my behavioral problems were fine. That's all it was. Yeah. These kids need to burn off energy. You run, you
1: run for half an hour, and then, or something, you play games, and then you do,
0: and then you write Mm -hmm. for like. 20 minutes i think that's a great exercise have all the kids just write whatever comes to don't don't be critical at all
1: we're not going to read it
0: yeah and you can then throw you, it away if you want yeah you should <laughs> every teacher should do that and then you gather all their papers and you throw it all in the bucket and you burn it <laughs> yeah and you just all the kids watch it burn like yeah and then the next day they'll do it again they'll write even more freely and not think about being critical about it yeah kill and that you burn it again oh man because like i went to i mean i was so lucky i went to a school i
1: went to an all-boys school for a little while wait that's lucky it was great it was awesome i gotta say so sixth seventh eighth grade and every day we had uh we had gym uh twice a week and we had intermural,s which was and once a week, which was like the whole, all the boys we had were divided into four houses. So mm-hmm. like four gangs, right? Black, uh, gray, blue, and red shirts. Uh-huh. And uh, every, t- every house had its own captain and every grade had its own captain. So it created different, uh, a different hierarchies of, of community. So like, oh, cool. Within my own, within the sixth grade, you know, I've got six dudes who I'm with who are part of this right click. Yeah. And, but one of them is like the alpha of that click. Right. Then it goes up into the seventh and eighth grade and we would all, and then we would meet once a week and, uh, we'd play like, you know, uh, touch football against each other or basketball or these different things. And it didn't matter if you were good or bad. So you did that, but then we also had gym. And then we also had, uh, at least one period a week was just study hall. Mm -hmm. So that very different than the public school setting, because in public school, every moment is regimented where it's like, we need to make sure you get uh, 90 minutes of reading. We need to make sure you get 50 minutes of math. We need to make sure you get uh, an hour a day of science. Right. And if you put together all the mandated hours that that these kids are supposed to be learning these essentials. Yeah. They would be, it's every day would be 48 hours of just instruction. (laughs) Uh So it's like too many cooks, too many voices, too many special interest groups trying to insert their agenda Uh into the day. Yeah. When I went to a school where everyone uh, excelled and we had more free time than... But it was like structured free time. It's like, yeah, study hall. During study hall, no one was messing around. Everyone's just reading books or like getting their science uh, projects done. Well behaved. Yeah. Yeah. But we were well behaved because
0: we ran. That's all it was. Because we got the gym in earlier, you know? Yeah. Having a kid wake up and just go sit in a desk (laughs) for eight hours is tricky. Right. With the broken water fountain. Mm -hmm. So they're like... (laughs) dehydrated and just
1: stuck and they're like what what do you guys have for lunch and they're like uh we got a juice box and some chips right
0: have you taught since you started doing stand-up yeah so uh is that confusing you're standing in front of a bunch of people and you're like oh i'm not supposed to be making jokes
1: no my kids loved me man and i think that the stand-up helped a lot because uh one thing that i always conveyed in the class was just communication Mm -hmm. so you communicate with your whole body. You don't just communicate with your words or people are going to get bored. Right. And I would be very good at, uh, using voices in the room. Mm-hmm. I wasn't on, but I, but using, commu- using your whole body as a tool to convey the message. Right. What is the lesson that they need to learn today? How can I get everybody feeling comfortable? What, when should I modulate my voice? Mm-hmm. So like it, teachers should Express anger in their room. Uh, this is gonna sound weird but what I mean by that is teachers should express a range of emotions in the room because by modulating their emotions, they are showing students the range that uh, They're showing them that it's okay to have that but uh, you never show your emotions when you're actually feeling them Hmm. so if I'm really angry, that's not the moment that I'm gonna like raise my voice
0: because you could scare the kids. I'm gonna
1: count to ten, <laughs> right, 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 Calm down, and then maybe later that day, I'm gonna like raise my voice when I'm not when I'm in control of my right. vessel. Yep. And that then makes sense. Communicate why I'm raising my voice in mm-hmm. the most logical
0: way, right? So that they can see, okay, like he doesn't play, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, it makes sense. Well, I think. There's more energy by what you're holding back. I think just screaming, people are like, whoa, that's crazy. But if you're just like, I'm going <laughs> to... That that like, little bit of holding back makes people like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm on the edge of my seat. Like, what's going to happen?
1: Yeah. I also learned that silence is the most important. Mm-hmm. It, it Silence is so much more effective. I would watch new teachers yell all the time. Right. And, like, it just becomes this uh, wave of white noise. Mm-hmm where uh kids ignore it they can tune it out
0: yeah that makes sense so the
1: lower you know if if you're angry and the room is loud you get lower you get more quiet right and that works in stand-up too sometimes yeah. you know yeah if the you, table's talking
0: yeah you just start whispering mm-hmm. and then everybody starts paying attention i mean you learn that in a bar if a bar is crowded and the music's on then all of a sudden the music stops yeah i'm just like uh, people will stop talking because it mm-hmm. becomes self-conscious Or to become conscious.
1: Yeah. So I've been teaching since then. Now I work with this great organization called the Story Pirates. And I've been uh, with them now for 10 years. And I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. Uh, We go into schools and we teach writing workshops to uh, the whole class. And we take the stories the kids write and we turn them into a show for the entire school to watch. Oh, wow. So it's like Saturday Night Live for fourth graders. This is kind of the way that I can describe it. But... So it's just for fourth graders? No, I mean, we go from
0: kindergarten all the way up to uh, about eighth grade. You ask them to write a story about something that happened to them in their life, or is no. it fiction? We come in with, uh, we have a variety of
1: different uh, formulas or like workshops. So one of the most popular ones is the hero workshop. And we we have them define what a hero is. And then over four to five days, they uh, we come up with a quest for this hero to go on. Mm-hmm. And they have a problem to solve that's typically bigger that that affects a lot of people and uh we really i try to insert like a social justice component to it Mm -hmm. so we figure out what some real problems might be right that are happening in the world and i get away from like bullying because i think whatever it's fine other people can talk about that but like (laughs) you know climate change is a, a pretty big one you know or uh recycling or yeah some th- graft and corruption demagogues <laughs> how real, do we get rid of them fake news how do we
0: stop it real fourth grade material
1: <laughs> yeah so it could be like you know so a hero can be a grandma a hero could be a saint bernard with a little barrel of hot cocoa uh attached to its neck uh-huh you know it can be it can be whatever so we do want them to get uh fantastical with it but we take those stories and then, uh, and, and what I noticed was that when I was a public school teacher, I would get 30 to 40% of my students would write if I gave them an assignment. But now when I go into these schools as a teaching artist, I'm getting like 99% mm. engagement Yeah, because I don't really care about the quality of the work. I care about the quantity. Right. And I, I'm able to access that part of them, that that excitement to play. Right. You know, and it kind of goes back to this, the, the morning pages idea with, mm-hmm. uh, what if we could get them to write first thing in the day and yeah. just tell them it's like disposable, Yeah, you know, it's not precious. You don't have to worry about it. I yeah. don't care about the misspellings. Right. I just care about your ideas. Yeah. And just getting stuff out. And once you start getting stuff out, you will want to get better at, you will want to craft it. Mm, so yeah. once I'm in love with the idea that someone will listen to my ideas, once i know that people will listen then uh i'm i can find a way to play
0: turn editing into play right yeah it's like even a painter yeah. van gogh's got van gogh's has hundreds of paintings where it's just the canvas and blue where he's just playing on a canvas of different blues yeah before he goes and puts it on a real painting i love drawing and a lot of
1: my drawings uh when I sit down, my, my fiance, she lives with me and she's always like, oh my God, you, it, it's like you did it in one take. Mm. She sees, she sees the final product and she's mm-hmm. like, you didn't, you, cause I use pens. I don't use pencils beforehand. I don't know race. Right. But, uh, like a couple of weeks ago she saw like a notebook I had and inside the notebook in between the margins were all of these like little primary sketches mm. that, so I'd done my calisthenics already. Right. I'd done the play. Right. So that when it was time to draw it in one sitting, uh, that's all she saw was me doing the drawing in one sitting. Right. And she, was, she thought it was magic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she then, saw behind the curtain. Yeah. And then she saw behind the curtain. She was like, oh. And yeah, that's the thing. It's like you got to, you know, the creative process
0: is just, is, is just uh, freeing yourself to play. Mm-hmm. You have to allow yourself, which is tricky because there's the critical mind. Yeah. And then there's the mind that wants to play and they work opposite each other
1: sure and then people the dumbest thing people do is they ask like so why are you doing that Mm -hmm. when you when you say you want to do something like i i like watching monologues on tv like uh like from movies Uh uh-huh and i was like oh man i want to learn this al pacino monologue from uh, the devil's advocate Uh uh-huh and and people who are not into acting or comedy are like why yeah i'm like who who knows but you know what, like sometime at a show in two weeks, there might be a moment where someone brings up Al Pacino.
0: Right. And then I just shoot shoot up and do that monologue yeah. off the dome. And mm-hmm. they're like, what? Yeah, or it could bring out a new inflection in your voice. Yeah,
1: yeah. Just the the art, all of this is obsessing. We're just, one thing that I admire with uh, comedians or artists in general is just the ability to obsess on
0: something. And also the abil- ability to be curious yes curiosity like what would happen if i did that i don't know let's see yeah take a deep dive
1: into something very specific and pay attention to it and uh and then and then reappropriate it re uh and put it in a new context
0: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: like i bought i bought this fencing gear last week (laughs) you did yeah I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I have it now. Fencing seems fun. I want to, yeah, I just want to watch some YouTube clips on fencing to get uh, started. And
0: be like, what, what is the strategy behind this? Why, why have people cared about this? I'm like, why is it not more popular? Yeah. It seems way more fun than boxing. I mean, you get to wield a sword and no one dies and no one gets hurt. Three different types of swords, too.
1: There's like really? a long sword and like a little dagger and then like a broad, like a... There's, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff to learn about.
0: There's a point system, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, I don't know anything about it. I was just um, at a yard sale and this old man, he uh, he's a great salesman. You know, I... I Took that from him. But I was like, (laughs) because clearly he got me to buy some rusty old equipment. You could bring that into your stand up. We're just trying to sell these bits anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he was peddling his wares. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I'll give you the whole set. I'll give you this whole setup, this white tunic. Uh-huh. And a mask and everything for ten bucks, and I was like, "Yes, you have to take that." Yeah. Do you have another one? I'll fence with you. I've got two handles. I got to go buy uh, new uh, tips because uh-huh. the old ones were rusty. And I was taking the train, and I didn't feel like taking weapons
0: on it on a train with me. Yeah, uh, especially as a Mexican. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, but yeah, they're like, <laughs> he's
1: gonna stab everybody on this train and <laughs> take their jobs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. The first thing I do is I, I poke them, I make them leak, and then I take their jobs. <laughs> So, Man, I forgot about fencing. I used to be really curious about fencing when I was a kid. Oh yeah, yeah, it's so funny. I totally forgot about it. I feel like it should be a more popular sport activity. Sure, well, sure. Well, now I walk through like
1: South Brooklyn, and there's all these uh, new venues that have really esoteric hobbies attached to them. Like, there's a place you can throw axes. Whoa! Well, yeah. And uh, it's like a little bar down by Littlefield where you can throw axes. Real axes. Yeah. At a bar. Uh Uh-huh. That sounds like like throwing darts, but you're throwing axes. That sounds like a terrible idea. And then like two doors down is like an archery spot Uh where people are just flinging off. Uh, arrows, it's, shafts. It's New York City. We have almost everything here pretty
0: much, right? Yeah, if you Google it, there's a way you can you can get involved deep in that subculture. Mm-hmm. Was it a culture shock for you moving here or it's pretty easy from D.C.? Well, I always
1: lived in East Coast cities. Mm-hmm. D.C. is uh, it's a village relative to New York in size, but mm-hmm. it's close. There's public transportation. There's buses. There's
0: like... Yeah, it it didn't feel too much like a culture shock. Right. right? Yeah, that's makes sense and also you have you already have the exposure to all different ethnic groups there pretty much
1: yeah so it, uh, there you know you hear a lot of jokes about like nah there's the subway smells crazy people like <laughs> uh, everyone speaks different it's right. like okay great iowa fine yeah yeah exactly <laughs> totally yeah so uh you host a couple podcast i do i got a show coming up i got a bunch of things that so yeah you you just got to keep doing things that's how you stay in this game for however long 14 Uh years yeah just keep having new projects and uh i have a podcast called eat pray judge which is a movie review podcast that i just put out with my old roommate and we're on like episode four we just talk about a bunch of movies that neither of us had seen uh growing up Mm -hmm. but that have been recommended to us and so we would spend take some time as, like, you know, men in our 30s yeah. to break these films down. Uh-huh. And uh, it's You're not, not a, eating
0: during the podcast, No, right? no, no. But okay. we do
1: watch a bunch of... We started watching a bunch of silly rom-coms, mm-hmm. and uh, now we're moving on to, like, food movies. Uh, a couple of the first podcasts that I think are out or will be out by the time this comes out are Say Anything, uh, which was really fun to watch, mm-hmm. uh, just looking back at the 80s. Yeah. And then What Women Want which is just like a great movie about Mel Gibson with superpowers where Uh he can read women's minds. And uh, so that's one podcast, Eat, Pray, Judge. And that's just fun, pop culture, nostalgia. And uh, the next one is called The Katie Halper Show. Mm -hmm. And I'm a permanent guest host on that. So she and I, uh, it's more of a political podcast. We're just Bernie, we are Bernie bros unapologetically mm-hmm. and we just you know i'm i'm looking for like a social de- i love the democratic socialists of america you know we interview people like uh eric garner's mom uh we talked to her uh we we interviewed jill stein before the election Oh wow! sorry we did it was great she was mm-hmm. awesome to talk to mm-hmm. uh we also recent we interviewed judah friedlander ted alexandro in terms of comedy but uh we're, oh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You had her on. Yeah, we had yeah. her on. Rising Star. Yeah, so that's the Katie Halper show. And uh, so you can find me at e Judge or the Katie Halper show. And or
0: gaypacheco.com.
1: And everything, all my social media is at gaypacheco.com. And, uh, you know, I'd love to interact with you. So when you're listening to this, uh, just, you know, find me. Find me on one of the social media platforms and uh, let's connect. And if you want to see me live, I'm always at Pete's Candy Store every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. at Funhouse Comedy. Yes. Yeah. And Imagine Gary, I... you've done that show. So, yes. Yeah. So, you know, it's you, lit. You want
0: to hear something neat is that my first date with my fiance was right after I did your show. Yeah. And I always tell her, I'm like, if I, I did well that night, uh-huh. I'm like, what would have happened if I would have bombed? Yeah. I would have bombed. I walked over to meet her at the Commodore, Uh the bar right nearby. Great burgers at the Commodore. Mm -hmm. But if I walked in to meet someone on a first date after bombing, I think the date would have gone terribly. You'd have to, yeah, you'd you'd have to walk around the block. You'd have to do a couple uh, laps jogging. Yeah, I think so. Just get your energy levels right. (laughs) Yeah, so you are intrinsically sewed into my life, whether Uh, you knew it or not. Thank you, Gary, man. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. All right. Thanks for coming here and doing this. Thanks, man.